You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. For our main segment this week, we will be discussing Hegel, Marx, and Raya Dunyevskaya. Co-host Andrew Kleiman has a recent piece out in With Sober Senses, the online publication of Marxist Humanist Initiative, which serves as an introduction to the first chapter of Dunyevskaya's book, Philosophy and Revolution. This is a chapter in which Dunyevskaya stakes out a unique understanding of Hegel's absolutes and discusses what the dialectic of the absolute means for Marxist humanist thought. So we will be discussing the dialectic uh, in the thought of Hegel, Marx, Engels, Lenin, and others in our main segment. And in our current events segment, we will be discussing the economic fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic. episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please do visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of Marxist Humanist Initiative. In just a moment, we will be discussing Hegel's absolutes, but first, a few words about current events. It became very clear to me early on that this is, you know, we're going to see an economic crisis of enormous magnitude, and it's not your normal economic crisis. And then I just began thinking about this more and more when, you know, I saw the normal lines of political debate, which is like, you know, how much stimulus and who gets the stimulus and oversight and and, and all, all of that stuff. It just became very clear to me, this is, this is not the real issue here, um, because, you know, your normal normal economic crisis, downturn, recession, um, what you have is a drop in demand, a drop in spending. And and you get like a drop in uh, businesses' investment spending, you know, so they don't build, uh, you know, new factories, new shopping malls. They, they don't install new equipment and they don't hire workers. And then you, you, you get, you know, layoffs. And because of that, you get a drop in consumer spending. That's the typical pattern. Okay. So it all has to do with lack of investment spending. Here, it's in entirely different. It's not demand-driven. It's not uh, initiated by a lack of spending. We have a problem of a lack of not demand, but supply, right? I mean, all kinds of stores, retail stores are closing. Restaurants are closing, you know, or have closed. People can't go to work and people are afraid, you know, uh, even, even where they're not being locked down, people are afraid, and rightly so, you know, to go to the restaurant, not to speak of, you know, movie theaters and uh, sports stadiums and places like that, okay? So you have to solve the health crisis before you can talk about solving the economic crisis because the economic crisis is predominantly this health crisis. You're not going to have any sort of economic normalcy unless you have, you know, people who can, can go to work, right? This is this is the key thing. And so the, what becomes of utmost importance is what we don't have is getting supplies, you know, protective, uh, personal protective equipment for healthcare providers, 
uh, ventilators and all kinds of stuff, you know, for the patients, uh, efficient testing, right? All of that stuff is what's needed to, you know, flatten the curve, as they call it, and 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 to, to, to deal with the magnitude of this crisis. That is the key economic problem. And throwing money at the problem in terms of fiscal policy, which is what they've done so far, that's, you know, they can debate amounts and this and that. And all of that's needed to tide people over, you know, so, you know, you don't have uh, people just, you know, losing everything, although it looks like that's going to happen. But, you know, you're you're, you're just going to be throwing money after throwing money and the stuff isn't going to be there and you're just going to get a huge bout of inflation, people spending money for stuff that's not there. Uh, you know, you're, 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 the inflation will be bound to eat, eat up everything. Uh, and then on top of that, they're borrowing massively already $2 trillion. And when the U.S. government has to finance the rollover of $2 trillion at markedly higher uh, interest rates because inflation has gone up, oh my God. Yeah. 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 You know, it could be very, very bad. You know, that's my thinking. And I was like, why aren't these people seeing it? Am I, am I crazy? You know? And then I saw um, a news story where it said Christina Romer, she's a very good economist. She was uh, head of uh, Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. And she said, yeah, look, this is, this is not a, a demand problem. This is a supply problem. And people are not going to be spending. And, and you know, you, you're not going to have the stuff for people to even buy if, if, if you don't solve this health crisis. So, I began to think, okay, so I'm not crazy. It's the politicians who are just like, you know, pulling, you know, sheets out of their standard playbook and ha haven't understood what's going on. Yeah, that's all very interesting. Um, you know, as I was listening to you talk, I was thinking like, I, I'm not even clear about what it would take to reopen society again, like what steps uh, would need to be in place. And then two, I, I don't even see any indication that... Um, this administration, the Trump administration, which is so criminally negligent on this uh, on this issue, I don't see any indication that the Trump administration would be able to do any of the necessary steps to um, make society safe enough for us to to you know reopen our cities again. Um, and then three, like when things do finally open up, it, I'm, I'm, it's not clear to me at all like how normal economic uh, recovery happens in that context. Those are all very good questions. And I don't know, and I don't think anybody knows because this is all unprecedented and it's all um, very much because of the whims of an incompetent maniac, you know, yeah. narcissist and, and worse. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that that's the core of the specificity of the U the U.S. health crisis is that that guy is still in office and still in charge. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. if you want to look at the one single measure that could be done, um, uh, uh, you know, one single thing that we could do to... to, to to alleviate this crisis and, and stop it from getting worse, it's obvious. Get rid of that guy. Look, yeah. no, nobody even knows. You know, you say in several months, you know, it's like several months might be what you need if you had a national coordinated strategy that was followed in every state. Right. You know, and... If states weren't competing with each other, yeah, competing, competing against each other for, yeah. for resources. I mean... Absolutely. The competition between states over resources is one of the, the most disturbing 
aspects of this whole thing. It makes me want to cry when I read about it. Just, right. And you know, we just need some like masks to put on people's faces. Yeah. And we're like, states are a bidding against each other over this shit. You know, hospitals are like tr- trying to compete with other hospitals for this. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. And the, meanwhile, the, the Florida, where the governor is, you know, saying, come down to our beaches during spring break and whatever. Oh, my God. You know, they're getting what they need, right? Yeah. Um, just unbelievable that this is the level of the federal government's responding. This is their way of solving. It just is competition. It right. Just and and I mean, the competition is a, is a direct result of policy here. It's not just mm-hmm. like it happens. It's like, you know, Trump says, hey, it's not the federal government's job to coordinate this and have a national policy. You know, it's up to the governors. It's up to 50 state governors, you know, yeah. to, 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 to go get, you know, ventilators. Right. Right. So, yeah. um, and, 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 and they're competing with FEMA. And they're competing with FEMA. FEMA right. is outbidding, is, is bidding against as against states for ventilators. Right, and and, and uh, apparently they're, they're they're being shipped to to, to China and other countries. It's, it's all it's all crazy. Um. So 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 yeah. How do we solve? You know, it's like how do we get out? I just don't see how this country is going to solve this problem. You know. Um. I just feel like it's going to drag on forever. And at some point, there'll be some we'll kind of get through the curve, and some cities will open up on different what by but by, by different criteria and at different times, and there's infections are going to roll back into cities and and counties yeah that's um, see that's what's worrying me is you know if it if it were done right maybe in a few months you could reopen the economy you know normal semi-normal in partially where you know um the rate of new infections is slowing like maybe york um but if this is all done half-assed and piecemeal you know and here and not there this thing isn't going to go away and every time you try to do that it's going to come back again you know and this could this could go on for a very long time, yeah. and you know, uh, I, I don't think anybody knows. And, and, yeah. and, and you know, this is what worries me is that in the end, you know, the the calculus is going to be well. Look, you know, we have to go back to, to life as normal. Most of us are going to live, especially if we're young. We're going to live, and the old people they've lived their lives already, and even the medical personnel recognize that they they triage and they say you don't come in. You're too old, and you know, putting you up to ventilators no use and so forth so this is what worries me is is that in the end the the drive to establish normalcy which also is related to the drive to get stock market back up and to get profits back up you know there's going to be a a renewed push to just let the old people die uh you know we saw that in a big way among lots of republicans and it kind of got shut down you know they stopped Mm -hmm. pushing that line it did not go very well but i i expect it to come back mm. um you know and and in a horrible perverse way uh in which capital capitalism tends to solve its crises that that would be a solution to the crisis mm-hmm. you, you kill off a lot of old people relatively smaller number of middle-aged and younger people and it's absolutely devastating and worldwide you got you know 50 million dead in the united states you got a million dead a million and a half but you know then you've got enough herd immunity that that you can pick up again. Um, right, right. I, I, that, that worries me because... When it's, you, how, it's, it's how the Nazis like envisioned uh, this kind of thing. Thin the herd yeah. of the weak. Um, um, when you when you look at the, the, the economic options that are available and you really, you know, I mean, people talk about like a, a, a sharp V-shaped downturn. You, you know, you, you, you pull the plug on the economy to, you know, flatten the curve, well, the spread of the virus, and then you can pick up again. You know, but even the people who talk 
talk about that say, well, you know, you, you have to get things exactly right, and they don't. Nobody even knows what's exactly right here. Yeah. Okay. So you can you can you can talk about that. Uh, it's very clear that just throwing money at the problem is, isn't going to solve anything. Um, and then then the alternative is, you know, you you just in the end let it rip and and let people die. And there aren't that many options here, so uh, it it is very very worrisome. But just so listeners are clear, we should you know, make the point that you know, societies could safely reopen and be able to control future outbreaks um, if we had sort of a sanely run country or countries which were able to uh, ensure uh, an emergency production of ventilators and um, protective gear for protective gear for hospitals and for like grocery and delivery employees and um, you know do adequate testing and um, contact tracing we could really um, manage this thing in a humane way without having to just you know open the doors again and say fuck it for sure and and in fact in, in in fact in principle that can even be done in capitalism there are countries uh notably south korea which you know had coronavirus came to it and and mm -hmm. managed to get the problem under control right and then there are countries that that, that, that haven't done that like the united states like like yeah. italy like spain like like france yeah, uh, the uk exactly. um yeah. so a lot has to do with um just the united states being very poor in any kind of economic and social planning in general, but then Trump uh, killing all the agencies and special task force or whatever that were supposed to deal with this problem, ignoring everything that they warned about. And then when he was warned by, um, you know, intelligence about the spread in China, he waited 10 weeks. You know, yeah. he did nothing for 10 weeks, gave us happy talk, hope, all this, you know, stuff. But he didn't begin to get serious about, like, listening to the experts and doing what they said. He was totally right. the other way for 10 weeks. And yeah. there's, you know, this thing, uh, this it spreads, it doubles, what, every five days or so, you know? So 10, 10 weeks yeah. is 70 days. So you, you, you get a, a, a thing go up. Uh, it's astronomical how much spread he created by just, by, by just that delay. I mean, ten weeks doesn't sound like much in normal terms, but this is this is a rapid exponential growth, uh, uh, and you know the spread of the virus. So that that that's absolutely unconscionable. Yeah. So, you know, right? I mean, I, I just wanted somebody to tell me Hillary would have been just as bad. <laughs> So, Andrew, today we're talking about your most recent piece in With Sober Senses, which is really interesting. It's doing a lot of different things. For one thing, it's um, sort of an introduction to the first chapter of Philosophy and Revolution by Raya Dunivskaya. And, uh, but at the same time, it's also sort of a meditation on Hegel and um, Marxist humanism in relationship to Hegel. And the unique way in which Dunyevskaya read and understood Hegel in contrast to other Marxist philosophers. So that's sort of the topic we're going to be talking about today on the podcast. And I have to say that I find Dunyevskaya's writing on Hegel still to be very difficult. And it takes me, you know, time to work through text and remember what different terms refer to and understand the way she's putting together concepts. Um, and especially since so much of 
what she is doing when she's reading Hegel and writing about Hegel is so different than how we often hear people talk about dialectics um, or Hegelian method or ideas. Um, so I think your piece is really good in sort of framing some of the key things that are unique about what she's doing. Well, thank you. Um, you know, I, I don't have any uh, formal qualifications qualifications in philosophy, um, and it's been a long struggle for me, too. I mean, I, I remember first trying to read the book Philosophy and Revolution, um, I believe it was 1985, and I understood less than nothing. Um, you know, I was part of like a study group or reading group on it, and uh, it was extreme, extremely difficult. All these terms I didn't know, and, you know, alternative terms, synonyms being used, I didn't know they were synonyms, and all these references to all of these people, and incomplete references, and yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been a long struggle. Well, one of the things your piece really goes into is um, Dunyovskaya's departure from traditional ways of understanding dialectics. You know, when, and I, when I was reading about this sort of stuff in college, I was sort of presented with the um, textbook version of uh, dialectics that it has deals with uh, thesis and antithesis and a synthesis. And Dunia Sky's work is a real departure from that. So, you know, is that synthesis the results from a thesis and an antithesis? Is that a misreading of Hegel? I'll tell you, I don't have the depth of knowledge to say on my own that it's a misreading of Hegel. Um, I would say that based on the knowledge that I do have, um, it's certainly plausible to read Hegel differently um, from that thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. Um, I would say a preponderance of specialists, uh, you know, on, on Hegel's logic and so forth, agree with Dunyevskaya's view that, you know, the dialectic of negativity is not thesis, antithesis, synthesis, you know, there were things that Hegel said also that, um, you know, very clearly to call that into question. There are, there are some specialists who, who would hear to that formula, but um, Dunyevskaya and I, it seems to me a preponderance of, 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 Hegel scholars re re reject that as an understanding of Hegel's dialectic. Uh, and it makes sense to me why they reject it. Right. So why do they reject it? The, the real problem with the reading, uh, and in, that involves several problems on, on top of it, but the basic problem is that the, the conclusion, the end result of the, the movement is not a synthesis of these two opposed terms, the thesis and the antithesis, at least not in the way in which synthesis is usually understood, where you have two self-subsistent, self-contained entities and they combine. Okay. Right. Um, it, it, it's not that. Um, in particular, because the dialectic of, of negativity is self-movement. Okay, it's self-movement development through contradiction. 
so it's it's a process in which you're transcending the entire ground of the thesis, you know, that which is uh, and that which opposes it or, or negates it. Okay, so there's, there's that opposition, what is, what isn't, you know, or it's this and then there's that. Um, and you don't, you don't combine the two, okay? There's, there's no combination of the two. Rather, there is a transcendence of the ground of that opposition and transcendence of both of the opposites. Okay, and, and there's a new beginning uh, as a... Let's, I, I feel like I, all these, all of these categories and discussions are a lot easier for me, at least, when we're dealing with some sort of concrete example. So... How, how about how about if I if I if I try to get into the political implications of okay yeah the, 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 it not being a synthesis right it's very very important and I think very uh, meaningful when it comes to understanding politics and political thought this issue of whether the dialectic results in a synthesis or or whether it doesn't because a synthesis is a closure. Okay, you've you've come to an end. You got the one. You got that uh, that which opposes it. Okay, thesis, antithesis, antithesis. Okay, if that results in a synthesis, that's it. Okay. Now you could say, well, you got the synthesis, and that's the new thesis, and it's you know confronted by a new opposite, a new antithesis that results in a new synthesis. Uh, and that becomes the new starting point, the new thesis, and again and again and again. One can say that. However, regarding the kinds of things that Hegel was talking about uh, in the final chapters of his you know, main works, uh, Absolute Idea, uh, Absolute Knowing, um, Absolute Mind, he's dealing with all-encompassing totalities. For instance, Absolute Idea is... Uh, the unity of theory and practice, right? And absolute mind is the unity of objective and subjective. Okay, and when you think about like theory and practice, they're both forms of human activity and together they're the entirety of human activity. I mean, everything that people do is either theoretical activity or practical activity or theoretical in this respect, practical in that respect. Okay, so it's all of human activity. If all of human activity is viewed as a, as a synthesis, that's it. That closure is, at that point, an absolute closure. Okay, nothing new can ever emerge. Okay, so if this is viewed as relevant to politics, what we are talking about is the end of history. Okay, so when, you, when you're grappling with these big totalities and you speak of synthesis, of the movement coming to an end, that end is an end. It's an absolute end. Okay, and if that's your understanding of the dialectic, then what one is saying is that the dialectic is the, the logic of closure, the logic of ending, the logic of nothing new ever emerging. And, you know... Um, that's like the opposite of, of, of revolutionary thought and what revolutionaries are, are all about. So you, you would just have to reject dialectical thinking as appropriate to revolutionary thought. You know, often when we hear people talking about dialectics, 
the impression is given that it is a general method which can be found in or can be applied to um, many different phenomena uh, and, and as, as sort of a unitary method. Um, but often when Dunia Sky is talking about, uh, she, she sounds very specific when she's talking about the dialectic of the absolute idea or the dialectic of absolute mind, um, as if this is a specific dialectical process that's specific to um, a specific category within Hegel. Um, so does that mean that, um, you know, for Hegel, or at least for Dunyovskaya's reading of Hegel, that there are different dialectical processes for different things? Um, is the idea of sort of a general method uh, a wrong I interpretation or understanding of Hegel? Uh, yes and no. It's dialectical. <laughs> um, okay. Here's, here's how I understand it. The, on the one hand, everything has its own dialectic because dialectic is, is, is fundamentally about self-movement. And there's no kind of cookie cutter, no sort of preformed plan, you know, or structure in which you can reasonably fit everything in and say everything moves in exactly the same way. I mean, things are different from one another, right? Different aspects of reality have different forms of self-movement. Um, but when we come to understanding just the self-movement, not the specific forms of the self-movement, but just to understand the logic of self-movement, what self-movement is, how you get the emergence of something new that was not there before. That is one and the same principle. So the, 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 the bare abstract underlying logic is always one and the same, but it, it manifests itself in myriad ways. And, you know, the, the abstract principle d does not take you very far in terms of understanding the particularities of self-movement in a particular case. There you need to understand, you know, the subject matter, the different forces, and, and all, all of what's involved in the particularity of the situation. I, I mean, I think that, that, that a lot of people come to uh, dialectic, thought because they, 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 they want sort of a, a master key, you know, some quote method, close quote, that you can apply here and there. And that, that's definitely not Dunyevskaya's understanding. I don't think it was at all Hegel's understanding. Uh, and the other thing I want to say with respect to that, when people talk about a method, and generally when we talk about method, we're referring generally to a tool or an instrument, um, um, something that you use. This, was, this is not what Hegel's me method is. This is not what dialectic method is. Dialectic method is the method of the subject matter. It's not something that you bring to it or apply to it, okay? Things, things themselves, reality itself is dialectical. Things in reality, aspects of reality, exhibit contradiction, self-movement, so forth and so on. Okay, so the method is their method. 
And, and you know, there are actually a variety of methods. And just abstractly, we can say, you know, here are the, the, the general forms of the method. But it's the subject matter's own method. And all that philosophy and thinking can do is um, understand this and, and, and grasp it and, and make sense of it, make it intelligible. And, and, and that's, you know, what I think Hegel was trying to do. But it wasn't like inventing a, a, a tool uh, that would, would open up doors, you know. But he was able to um, make intelligible the, the logic of free movement of thinking. So let's, let, can we get into this concept of self-movement and how, <laughs> how it happens? For, for, for one thing, when we're talking about self-movement, what is the self that's being moved either the Dunia Sky is talking about or the Hegel's talking about? And then I guess, secondly, you know, how does this, how do they understand the self-movement happening? Okay, what is the self? Um, I mean, to really understand dialectic, you really have to understand self in a very general way, um, which is the starting point, you know, what one would refer to as the thesis. Hmm. Okay, that's the self. Now, you want to talk about Dunyevskaya as a revolutionary Marxist humanist. I mean, the, the, the self is you know, revolutionary masses of people and revolutionary thinkers are, are ourselves and, you know, revolutionary organizations. So th those are particular aspects of it. But the whole idea of self is really important because, I mean, there's a debate in philosophy, uh, which is, you know, persists to this day, perhaps it's bigger than in, in Hegel's time, as to whether there is anything that, that is the self or whether this is indeed an illusion. You know, I mean, you're mm -hmm. Brendan Cooney, you know, and you think of yourself as the same Brendan Cooney that you were 14, at age 14, you know, but just more developed. A lot of people would say that's, that's an illusion. <laughs> okay? Yeah. But that's the notion of a self, of something that persists through, amid uh, all of the changes. A lot of people would say, look, you, you, you were that, and then the, the, the matter in your body changed. I mean, your skin flaked off a little bit, and the new cells grew, and there's, there's no persistence. And if you, can't, you don't have persistence, you don't have the development. You just have one damn thing after another, right? I mean, that, that is a certain view, but, but right. when you talk about self... Right. It really does carry a lot of weight, carries a lot of meaning of the starting point. It isn't just what it is, but it can develop. It can persist. It can change amid, you know, facing contradictions, confronting problems. Um, but amid and through these changes that it, over, uh, that it undergoes and these contradictions and oppositions that it confronts and the problems... Amid, amidst all of this, all of these changes, it persists. It, it abides. It continues. Mm. Okay? So, so, so selfhood is, is a really important concept here. Mm. Whether you, you know, what, what, however you want to apply that. Mm. Okay? So, so this is really the logic of freedom that, that we're talking about. You're not just like, you know, some, some isolated entity buffeted about 
such that, you know, everything that, that hits you and buffets you about changes you so that you're no longer you. I see. I see. Or, or in philosophical terms, we're talking about subject. Yeah. This is, this is the, the, yeah, this is the, the philosophical yeah. term for self and subject are really good. Close and so anything uh, we concepts. anything we under anything we're looking at, whether it be a political movement, masses of people, um, a an idea, any any subject can exhibit self movement. I mean, yeah, but that's what it is to be subject, mm -hmm. rather than just object. Right, right. I see. Right. I mean, not 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 everything really exhibits self movement. Right, right. So, how does this self movement happen? If the self or the subject is not just um, changing and evolving because of the external forces, but it's something that is self generated and self moving, how? You know, what is that process? Well, it's like the light bulb joke, right? How many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know this one. Uh oh, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know. Only one, but the light bulb really has to want to change. Oh, that yes, I do know that one. <laughs> right. Okay, so 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 that's that's the key, I think. Um, mm -hmm. Although when when you look at like Hegel's logic. There's a lot of mediation to, 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 to come to that conclusion. But, but yeah, the, the light bulb has to want to change. The subject has to want to change. Um, one of the simplest but profoundest ways, I think, of understanding what the dialectic of negativity is was expressed by Marx uh, in, interestingly enough, uh, an economic writing, uh, his uh, Grundrisse uh, outline of... Uh, critique of political economy, and he was writing um, very, you know, this is all very ironic in a way. He was writing about pre-capitalist economic formations in a certain passage, and he begins to talk about wealth. You know, he says, what is wealth? And he goes through all this stuff, and he says, you know, once you strip away the capitalist form of wealth, what it is is a situation in which the human being strives strives not to remain what he has become, but is in the absolute movement of becoming. Okay, so he uses a, a, a straight out Hegelian concept, not just term, but you know, yeah. term and, and concept there. Okay. Strives not to remain something he has become, but is in the absolute movement of becoming. That's a reference to uh, absolute ne uh, negativity, negation of negation. So you get this idea of becoming. You know, and so what what becoming is is you know there's what is, and it, it doesn't disappear, it doesn't just stop, but it, it it changes, but it persists amid the changes, okay, so this is again subject, this is again the, the, the self that, that I was referring to, and the key you know for Marx is the striving. The striving not to remain something that you've become. Okay, so that's Marx's idea of what a wealthy human being is. It's one that right. is seeking development. You know, one that is seeking to overcome alienation, to be whole, 
uh, to enrich themselves, you know, uh, through new skills, through new ideas, and so forth. Um, but yeah, the light bulb has to want to change. So you use the term absolute negativity, and that's something we should define for listeners who are not familiar with the term. Right. Okay. Absolute negativity is also known as the negation of, of the negation. Okay. So how does it differ from like, you know, your father's negativity uh, or what's often called first negativity? Okay. It, it's not a bare negation. You know, it's not like black, white, you know, like a not a right. that, that that's that's a bare negation and when you have a starting point or thesis and you just negate it in that manner you you end up with 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 nothing or you end up with the starting point for instance in mathematics you have a then you've got minus you know so you got positive a you negate it you got negative a you negate the negative a you got positive a you're back at the starting point Okay, so that's not self-movement. You're just, you know, going around in a circle. Um, okay, so but that's one aspect, moment, but not a moment in time. That's one aspect uh, of, of, of negativity. Um, but there's the process of transformation. There's the process of transcendence. Okay, so... The movement of the one being met with the other does not have to result in either nothingness or a return to the beginning, okay? But if you can transcend the ground of that opposition, the one, the other, if you can transcend or technically sublate that ground, you have a new beginning, okay? So it's a question of, when you've got this opposition or contradiction, can you find a way out of it? And if so, how do you find a way out of it? Okay. The answer is always specific to the case, the subject matter, but the, the, the general principle is an insurmountable opposition can be overcome only by transcending the ground of that insurmountable opposition. And that's what makes it absolute. Okay, because it's, it, it stands on its own foundation as a result. You've moved to a new ground. So it's, it, it's not relative to the starting point and its opposite. Okay, it's not dependent or conditioned by where you began. Okay, you've transcended that and you've moved to a new so-called higher ground. And it's a new beginning. It's a new starting point. And so it, it's absolute in the sense of it's not conditioned. It, 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 it is now a new foundation. I would assume listeners would be able to understand why that kind of thinking is crucial for revolutionary politics and how that sort of approach um, that really gets at changing the ground of a contradiction differentiates revolutionary politics from reformist politics yeah, and just and just being reactive to the things that they you know throw at us all the time you know where do we get right. to express our own strivings our own politics our own needs okay um you know and, and, and instead of like you know i mean you look at donald trump what, what does he try to do he tries to make everybody react to him all all the time in every moment he's very good at that how do we you know 
how do how do we move beyond that? Right. Um, I, can I say something? Ju- just just mm-hmm. because I've been very abstract, and mm-hmm. I, I've, I've purposely been very abstract. I've 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 avoided giving examples, and it's not because I don't like examples or I want to make this you know unintelligible. Here's the problem. It's easy to understand the examples. And people come away and they've understood the examples and therefore they think they've understood the principles. Hmm. But, but it, do, it doesn't work like that. You can understand the examples, but what you're understanding about the examples is not the principles. So you have to hear and think through the articulation of the principles till you really get the principles. So once the, the principles have been articulated, then, you know, then we can turn to, to examples and so forth. But uh, I, I think, because I've experienced this, you know, you know, you, you ask a question about this or that aspect of the dialectic and, you know, well, somebody says, well, you know, I was taking out the garbage yesterday. It's like what comes to your mind is, you know, the smelliness of the garbage and the green plastic, uh, you know, garbage can and, and just... You, you, you get all involved in the concrete particulars, um, and you, you, you don't grasp the principle involved really well. You you need certain terms and certain concepts to be able to grasp the um, you know the the general principle, and and that's lacking when when you just hit people with examples. So I, I don't mean to be like incomprehensible. Uh, although I understand the, the the danger of that, it's just people have to to understand this. You have to think in a, in, a, in a different way uh, about the, the the ideas themselves rather than how they're applied. Okay, well that's fair enough. In just a moment, we'll return to this conversation about Hegel, Dunyaskaya, and Marx with Andrew Kleiman. But first, a few words from Angela Clark of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Hello, this is Angela Clark, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. 
MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. So I thought maybe we could pivot here in the discussion and talk about some of the ways that Hegel has been interpreted by other Marxist thinkers. Um, and maybe we should start with Engels, because he's one of the most influential uh, writers talking on this topic of what Hegel means for Marxists. Yes, Engels has been really influential uh, in the history of Marxist thought, uh, you know, for providing kind of like a standard gloss on, you know, what Hegel's about and what he's good for and what he's not good for. Right. And and partly this is, um, Engels has this power of studying the interpretation because uh, when he's writing anti-During and talking about the influence of Hegel on Marxist thought, um, none of Marx's early writings, which are stamped so much with the Hegelian influence, are known to people, and they don't become known for many decades after Engels um, sort of popularizes Hegel. Right, and because Anti-During is a book that, right, Engels writes, you know, I read it to, to Marx, and I, you know, we we had this idea that Marx agreed with, with everything uh, in it, and right. in some sense it was a joint work, and just the entirety of that phase of Marxism was to join Marx and Engels, you know, Marx and Engels this, Marx and Engels that. Um, and, you know, that provided, uh, it made it easy for a lot of people because Engels was a lot easier to understand and closer to their thinking in some ways. Um, and, it, I mean, it's, it's taken... Uh, decades of, of, of thinking about this and, and people writing about this, Donetskaya being one of them, to say, look, you know, there are differences between uh, Marx and Engels, and they're particularly sharp with regard to philosophy. Marx had a degree, you know, uh, a, a doctorate in philosophy. En Engels, not so much. <laughs> um, so, in any case, yeah, Eng Engels provided this, this gloss that has been very influential, and I think really not helpful in the end. Um, and what he basically did is to say the dialectic method is revolutionary. But in Hegel, it's enclosed in a system and the system is conservative and reactionary. Uh, and so, you know, Hegel reconciled himself to the monarchy, you know, the absolutist state uh, and that's the real import of, you know, not only his political thought, but also, you know, his pure, proper f philosophy, uh, you know, his metaphysics, his, his epistemology. Um, and the way, according to, to, to Engels and according to a lot of other people, in which 
the Hegelian system is conservative and reactionary is precisely the thing that we were talking about before. Uh, when we reference the, you know, the formula thesis, antithesis, synthesis, but it doesn't have to be that, okay? But the point is, thesis, antithesis, synthesis results in a closure. And Engels, like a lot of other people, said, ah, the Hegelian system results in a closure. It's the end of history. I, mean, I, I think he actually men mentions that phrase, end of history. You know, and that's anathema to any revolutionary. This, this, this idea of, 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 of an end to history. Uh, so we've got to reject that. So what Engels tries to do is to say, well, yeah, we've got to reject this closure, okay, but we want to retain the dialectic method. Okay, and, and you, can, you can separate the two neatly. So we can extract and, you know, uh, use, so to speak, the dialectic method, but we have to, you know, jettison the the system, and what that means is jettisoning the absolutes, because the absolutes are, you know, the 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 ending, uh, so to speak, of, of of the system. At the end of you know Hegel's major books, they resulted, uh, they, they culminated in an absolute, absolute knowing, absolute idea, absolute mind. Okay, so. Are those closures? Well, actually, Engels says, you know, when you get to the idea in the logic, the absolute idea, it's not actually a closure because then you move into new realms. But when you reach the end of the entire Hegelian system uh, with the philosophy of mind, you reach absolute mind, then your closure, that, that's a straight out closure. That's the end of history. That's conservative. That's reactionary. We, we, we got to, you know, just abandon that, reject that. Uh, Entirely. So when Dunyevskaya is like, no, you know, the absolutes are not a closure. This is new beginning. Absolute negativity is new beginning. It's ceaseless. It's self-movement. It never ends. She's going against, um, you know, at that point it was, I don't know, uh, 90 years of tradition. And now it's another uh, 50 <laughs> To, to my mind, the, 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 the basic problem in, in, in what um, Engels was proposing is he's, he's begging the, the, the question. He's, he presumes that you can separate neatly method from system. You know, mm -hmm. that's not something you can just assume. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I liken it to like driving a car okay that, that's the method but you know let, let's let's drive a car such that we we, we, we we don't get this result let's drive the car such that we don't go anywhere you, you can't drive a car without going somewhere you know if you've got a dialectic method it it, 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 it generates certain results you know so I, I I just don't think the whole thing works. It sounds good, but I just don't think it. I, I don't think it works. Aside from the sort of logical problem, um, does Engels' interpretation lend itself to certain sorts of certain types of political conclusions that might also be problematic? Well, it, it leads to a rejection of the dialectic of the absolute. Mm -hmm. 
because one says, well, let's not go there because that's just going to lead to end of history, reconciliation with the monarchical state. Um, and what we, what we need is, I, I, I guess what the idea is, let's just have these series of, uh, you know, never-ending confrontations, never-ending contradictions, um, you know, but principally it lacks this self-movement. Um, right, the self-movement is what gets jettisoned. I, I think so, yeah. I, that, that seems right to me. I, I, I'll, you know, let me think about it, but that seems right, right to me, yeah. Well, of course, you know, Dunyaskaya uh, had no shortage of criticisms for Stalinism and the sort of approach to dialectics, amongst other things, that was taken uh, by Stalinists. But is there a relationship between that sort of Stalinist dialectics and Engels' gloss on Hegel? Um, well, I mean, the, 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 the one point that they definitely have in common is this rejection of, of, of Hegel's absolutes. Right. Um, and, and the and with it the idea of absolute negativity and self movement. Yes, because yeah. that's what the I mean I mean in, in Dunyaskaya's uh, understanding of it, the, the absolutes are absolute negativity. Mm -hmm. Right? They, they they are this ceaseless self movement that generates new new beginnings, transcends mm -hmm. uh, the ground of the previous oppositions. Um, so there's there's a rejection of that, and she sees that as always tied to an attempt to actually um, declare the, the Stalinist regimes the end of history, mm -hmm. right? Right. You know, well, the, the one thing they the one thing they don't want is ceaseless self movement against you know their rule, <laughs> right? Um, right. So. I mean, you can't blame Engels for that, of course. But, right. Um, cannot blame Engels, but yeah, there's there's a lot of focus on in in, in both Engels and and um, the Stalinist thinking a lot of um, focus on the, the 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 category of contradiction. You know, which is an important category, but um, what that seems to to do is to leave everything at you know, you got the, the the starting point, and you got that which opposes it. You know, well, how do you, how do you transcend the, the the ground of this this opposition? How how do you overcome uh, insurmountable contradictions, oppositions? Right. Well, you do what the party tells you. Right. right. <laughs> um, so, right. I, I mean. I you know look I I don't know how important Engels' gloss is to all of this. I mean, if there had been no Engels, they would have come to the same conclusion anyway. I think, but um, just just for like you know just an understanding within Marxism generally, I think that this formula of revolutionary method enclosed in a conservative reactionary system that uh, is that of the absolute that leads to closure and of history. I just think that that's been very um, influential even among, you know, people who are not really Stalinists. 
Uh, I mean, for instance, uh, Herbert Marcuse. I mean, he understood Hegel really, really deeply, a lot, you know, more deeply than we than Engels seems to have done. I mean, um, but he 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 Marcuse comes to the same conclusion that you know you get uh, a closure, you get an end of history, um, uh, an annulment of all contradiction, opposition when you you get to the um, the the end of Hegel's system. And Adorno, Theodore Adorno, basically the the, the the same, basically the same kind of idea. So I mean, Dunyevskaya is really just going against the whole tradition of Marxism, and I'm not even just I'm not even you know for not even mentioning Stalinism here. The whole tradition, Engels. Marcuse, Adorno, all of Hegelian Marxism. She's breaking with with all of that, at least with respect to the the understanding of uh, Hegel's absolutes. Oh, let me just say a word on on the word Hegel's absolutes. I mean, there is there is one absolute, but it has different forms of appearance depending on the sphere of um, knowledge that, that one's talking about. So there's the idea, there's mind, there's knowing. Right, but but absolute is absolute, right? There's there's, there's one absolute, but it, but we can talk of we can talk of absolutes because of the different forms of appearance. So what about Lenin? I mean, Lenin's um, writing and thinking about Hegel is less well known um, because um, he doesn't have like published works where he discusses Hegel. But uh, Lenin did read Hegel and. Um, take a lot of notes on Hegel and his, his notes on his reading of Hegel, which he um, wrote while he was in exile prior to the Russian Revolution, um, were very influential on Dunia Sky, and she discusses his notes in great detail as she is um, sort of exploring the potentials of Hegel's philosophy. Yeah, just a very, very little bit because I, I don't deal with the substance of her debt to, to Lenin. She has a huge debt to Lenin. Yeah. Uh, and she has huge differences with Lenin. I don't I don't really go into the substance, but just to kind of do the chronology uh, that I was doing, I want to say, you know, okay, here's where she stands in relation to, to Engels. Here's where she stands in relation to, to Lenin. Here's where she stands in relationship to Marcuse. Uh, but uh, Dunyevskaya has a huge debt to Hegel, uh, to Lenin. I, to, excuse me. Yes, Dunyevskaya has a huge debt to Lenin, and I think that she understood her work on philosophy as carrying through a line of thinking uh, project that Lenin articulated and began, but never carried out. Hmm. Uh, and that has to do with the, the notebooks uh, that you're referring to. Lenin is uh, dealing with, which Marxists had not dealt with. He's not just dealing with contradiction, you know, category of so-called essence. You know, he's dealing with uh, the concept or the notion, which is the, the, the logic of free movement. Um, and, you know, he, he, he's looking at all of this and he gets this insight that human cognition not only reflects the objective world, but it creates it. 
Okay, I mean, there's a sense in which, you know, thought, just cognition, just reflects what's there. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's the materialist standpoint. Right. But here you got Lenin, the arch-materialist. You know, he wrote materialism and imperial criticism and all of this. Yeah. All of a sudden, midst of World War One, he says, cognition not only reflects the objective world, but creates it. That's like, you know, idealism, right? Right. Okay. And this is what Dunyevskaya was concerned to draw out for revolutionary thought in particular, right? The the, the creative aspect of thinking um, and its importance for revolution. Okay, and this goes back to to Marx's basic... uh, understanding of absolute negativity striving not to remain something you've become but are in the absolute movement of becoming right and so um this creation is is not just the creation of something external although it involves that but it's it's the self-creation the self-transformation right um so um, yeah, the, I mean, the, the very simple point is that our thought is, is crucial to this whole development. We're not just buffeted by external events and forces that we react to, um, but we can, you know, take control of, of, of the process and, and guide it uh, in a way that is developmental, self-developmental, and uh, re- results in something new. This is, this is the revolutionary perspective to a T, as I understand it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so this idea of cognition not only reflecting the objective world, but creating it, you know, th- this is what she, I, it's clear to me, she regarded as the the burden, the special, um, the her, her unique contribution was, was, was developing this that had been Articulated in Hegel, excuse me, had been art, this had been articulated in Lenin, but he never developed it. Um, and so she ties this to, to Lenin not exploring the philosophy of mind. You know, he goes through the entirety of Hegel's science of logic, but at the end of the science of logic, uh, Hegel is referring to talking about absolute liberation and the idea of freely releasing itself completing its self-liberation in the science of spirit, in other words, the philosophy of mind. But Lenin was not impelled by this last bit of the, the science of logic where uh, Hegel is saying this. He wasn't impelled to go on to the philosophy of mind that Hegel w- was leading him on to. So he, wasn't com- he, he didn't feel impelled to explore this... Um, logic of, of self-liberation and right. and so that that's Dernius guy's criticism so yeah. the, the dead is, is the same thing as the criticism the dead is he's got this idea of self-liberation uh of of, of cognition you know not not, not, to, not just self-liberation in in activity but in thought as well cognition creating the world but he, he just doesn't develop it Pivoting slightly, one thing you write about in your paper that I thought was <clears throat> important was this question of whether Dunyevsky is guilty of distorting Hegel. And you have, a, I think, a nuanced 
understanding of that. I guess that's good, right? And there are two different questions. <laughs> One is like, where do the concepts lead if you follow them independently? And then the second question is interpretation of texts and, and, and that there are two different things. And Dino Sky is more focused on the former question of how these ideas are uh, in Hegel are, I don't want to say useful, but are, are um, important for radical thought and to sort of follow them where she um, thinks they, they lead naturally. Um, or right, that is, I think, the, 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 the issue, where they lead naturally. What is the logic of the dialectic of negativity itself? You know, not right. here, here's how I feel like applying it versus how Hegel felt like applying it. Okay, so she, 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 she basically splits the issue of Hegel's dialectic into Hegel's self-understanding of what he did what Hegel was trying to do and trying to say, and she leaves that aside. And then there is what he did say with the logic of um, the dialectic is in and for itself. So she, she radically splits the two. And she says, I'm only concerned with the latter, the, the logic itself. And, you know, she says, you know, no matter what he wanted to say, you know, look, the dialectic itself is revolutionary. It does not come to an end. Uh, there's a ceaseless self-movement. generates new beginnings. Uh, I, I think she's really successful at doing that. Um, so she's not unaware of the issue, and she's not trying to say at all. I mean, she's explicitly rejecting the, the idea that she should be interpreted as providing uh, a commentary or interpretation on Hegel's intentions, what Hegel wanted to say, what Hegel thought he was saying. Um, right. That's not what she's about. I mean, at, at one point, uh, she actually gets at this issue at least twice in, 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 in philosophy and revolution in the book. You know, but at one point she says, you know, let's subject Hegel's dialectic to Hegel's dialectic, or something like that, right? Let's subject Hegel himself to Hegel's method. Right. Okay, so let's let's look at the, the, the dialectic, you know, and not get burdened by, oh, here's what the person wanted to say. And, you know, you, if you, you read Hegel, he's again and again doing something very similar. You know, he's saying, you know, here, here's what somebody means, but it's not what they're saying. Right. And, you know, so she's saying, look at, look at what he's saying. Not what he means. Look at what he's saying. Right. Well, that's all the time we have today for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. Please stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to hear more episodes, to join in the conversation, or to leave a donation. Don't forget to share the podcast with friends. However you do that through social media or otherwise, uh, we always appreciate people um, sending the podcast around, leaving comments, liking the podcast, and all those things. Stay safe out there. Mm -hmm.